0: Good morning, church. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend part of our time this morning. Acts chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. God's Word says this Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochris, Nicanor, Simon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Amen. Let's go to the word in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to come into your house and worship you this morning as believers in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and open up our minds, open up our ears to the word that you have for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would speak through me just as I prayed all week. Lord, I pray that you would make myself small and I pray that you would make yourself large from what your scripture says about yourself. Lord, I pray that you would just use this time to grow each and up each and every one of us in your word. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So good morning, everybody. Um, I I know we have a lot of new faces around the church here lately. um, And I see we have a lot of visitors this morning, which I praise God for. Um, So if you don't know who I am, my name is Broccoli. I am a I currently serve in a few areas of the church, and one of which is I serve as the chairman of our deacons this year. Um, there's nothing extraordinary about that name, there's nothing extraordinary about the title, it just means that on top of normal deacon duties, I also uh, prepare the Lord's Supper once a month, and I also try to help organize help for our fellowship meetings that we have once a month. Um, now, it's been, it's been a while since I've been up here to preach, it's been right at about three years, because it was right when uh, COVID started. I've... I remember coming up here and, and recording for those that were staying at home. So it's been a little while. Um, and so when, when Pastor Cody approached me about preaching a few months ago, he, he said, hey, I want you to preach in June. I just assumed it was going to be in Leviticus. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so at first I was like, you know, that, that's all right. But he told me instead he wanted me to preach on the roles and responsibilities of, of what a deacon looks like. I was like, okay, I can do that too, either way. didn't really matter. Well, as of you know, the past few weeks, the, the topics that, we, that we've heard Pastor Cody preach on, I'm, I'm extremely thankful that I have not had to preach on Leviticus this morning. That's, um, thank you for that. So, so thank you that I'm, I'm not preaching that this morning. Um, but I will say that the last time that I preached, Pastor Cody asked me to preach from Deuteronomy, and he had me preach on the biblical role of parents and how to parent our children. And so I feel like this is two sermons in a row that he's given me that have been areas that I don't necessarily feel like I'm all that strong in parenting and being a, a, a biblical model of a deacon. You know, there, there's a lot of room for growth in my life, but, you know, I, I appreciate Pastor Cody giving me areas to, to grow here, you know, so, th- so thank you for that. Thank you so much. But in, in all seriousness, as we begin our deacon nomination process this year, um, I, I think that it's important for us to visit what the scriptures have to say about deacons. Right? Um, In today's culture, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what the role of a deacon looks like. Um, And and I hope that today we might be clear, uh, we might be able to clear up any confusion that we have. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about one, the need for deacons, two, the qualifications for deacons, and three, the application for our church, how we apply this information. So, first, uh, let's look at the need for deacons that we see here in our text. If we look back at our opening text here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we can see the first time that deacons appear in the scriptures. Now, this wasn't an assumed position in the church that Jesus instituted before he left, nor was it a position that stemmed from the Jewish traditions that most of the new believers were familiar with. Because remember, the the Jews had the Levites, they were the servants of the church. So, what happened in Acts chapter 6 that gave birth to this new position? Of deacons, Well, we see in verse 1 uh, that there was a conflict that arose between two groups within the church. The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews for neglecting their widows in the daily distribution. Now, in order to understand this complaint, we, need, we first need to unpack who is involved and what this daily distribution is all about. So, first we need to distinguish the difference between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hebrews are the Christian converts that were originally Jews living in Israel. They held the Jewish customs, they spoke the Hebrew language, and they lived in Jewish Palestine, the the area that the the Jews stem from. But then there were the Hellenists. And these were Christian converts who were originally Jews living in Greek culture. They mainly spoke Greek. They held the Jewish customs as well, but they lived outside of Jewish Palestine. Now, now, why are they here? Remember what has just happened. We had the Feast of the Passover, right? And so while we have all these pilgrims coming to, to Israel for the, the Feast of the Passover, coming to Jerusalem, they hear the gospel. They hear the good news of the gospel. And they stayed to be a part of the church. So that's why we have this mix of Hellenists and Hebrews in Jerusalem at this time. Now, the problem that occurred between these two groups um, was over food and money. Remember that the church was supporting one another in common at this time. We see this in Acts chapter 4 verses 34 and 35 when it says, "...nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need." So, the argument that arose from the Hellenists was that in this daily distribution of funds, Um, and food, their widows were getting shortchanged. They felt like their widows were being given an unfair amount of the proceeds. Now, is this claim true? Did the Hebrews really neglect the Hellenist widows? And if they did, was it intentional? The answer is, we don't know. There's not enough evidence to tell us one way or another. It's possible that the Hebrews, still clinging to their sinful disdain for Greek culture intentionally neglected these widows. It's possible. It's possible that they neglected the widows unintentionally, not realizing their mistake. It's also possible that the Hellenists were either mistaken or they fabricated, they fabricated this complaint for some reason. Ultimately, we don't know. We don't really know what happened. All we know is that this argument arose and it made it to the ears of the apostles. Now, this is where we get into the meat of the issue, Right? So the apostles hear this argument, and they realize that they honestly don't have time for squabbles like this within the church. Now, this does not mean that they do not care about the issue. This doesn't mean that the the apostles didn't want to hear about it. But they understood that by handling issues like this on their own, the apostles were neglecting the preaching of the gospel, which was first and foremost their job. As a result, the apostles called the church together, as we see in verses two through four. It says this: Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, "It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to the prayer and to the to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, the apostles had a wisdom much like Jethro in Exodus chapter 18 when he counseled Moses regarding a similar issue. They saw that in order to effectively orchestrate the church and continue the preaching of the gospel, they were going to need help with the daily needs of the people. They were going to need diakonos, which is the Greek word for servants, when this is where we get the word deacons, diakonos. They were going to need these diakonos. Now, there were three main functions that these deacons were meant to serve in the the church for the apostles. The apostles intended them to, first, wait tables, second, protect unity within the church, and third, assist the apostles so that they could focus on the Word. And you should see that in your bulletin there. Now, we even organize our monthly meetings as deacons based upon these three functions. This is how we structure our meetings and how we go through the topics of discussion. And we can see these functions very clearly from the text. So first, let's, let's look at waiting tables. Verse 2 tells us that the apostles thought it was not desirable for them to leave the Word of God and serve tables. Now, let's hear this. This does not mean that the, the apostles thought that serving tables was beneath them. Right? Let's get that straight. This, this was not that the, that the apostles felt it was beneath them. It also doesn't mean that the deacon service was limited to serving people at mealtimes. That wasn't the only job of the deacons. The idea of waiting tables was an idea for general service to the, da- the daily needs of the church, right? Uh, that would include many other functions as well. Here at Gray Gables, this includes coordination of monthly fellowships and gatherings, service projects for those that are in need, uh, that need help around the church, general maintenance of the grounds when necessary, and many other areas as they're needed. There's lots of things that we, we end up doing. Um, but we do these things because they are necessary for the church to function. We do these things because we're here to serve. Now, the deacons were also intended to protect unity within the church. We see that this was accomplished in verse 5 when it says that the apostles' proposal pleased the whole multitude. Now, do not be mistaken, this was not a political move to maintain peace, right? This was a genuine attempt to bring God's people together in love. When the church saw the resolution, they knew that this was good for everyone. They came together in love and reconciliation. We even see that, seven, that the seven men that were chosen in verse 5 had Greek names. So this means that all seven men were most likely Hellenists. The Hebrews were so committed to serving their brothers in Christ, they were willing to lay down their rights of representation within the deacon body, right? These newly appointed deacons serve the, the church gladly and fairly, which maintain loving unity within the body. Likewise, the deacons here at Greg A will strive to maintain peace within the body as well. Now, we're, we're not the unity police by any means, but we do try our best to encourage all of our members to, uh, to maintain brotherly love. Yes, there are instances when, when uh, conflicts arise, and sometimes that's within our deacons' meetings themselves. We, we have conflicts sometimes. But in the end, our goal is to point this body of believers back to the gospel for the sake of Christ's glory. That's the goal here. That's why we have deacons. And then finally, we see that the deacons were chosen so that the apostles could focus their, effort, their efforts on the word. Verse 4 tells us that the apostles, um, and it tells us what the apostles intend to do once the deacons are serving. They will give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They realize that this is their call. Jesus had ordained them with the task of preaching the word and making his known in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. But they cannot, they cannot fulfill this role if they are bogged down with the weight of daily, um, of daily functions of the church. They have to have time with the Father in prayer and in His Word. Likewise, our pastors have to have time for study, right? None of us really know the time and effort that it takes to serve the church well like our two pastors do. Praise God for Pastor Cody and Pastor Justin. They have, to, they have weekly sermons to write. They have grow lessons to prepare, music to organize, new material to write discipleship meetings to lead, and a whole list of other things that they have to do throughout the week. And let's not forget about the families that God has entrusted them with as well to take care of and to lead. So they have a lot to do. Do you think that they would have time to faithfully serve this church every week if they had to wait tables and maintain unity? No. They, they could not effectively do their job. They would be too distracted to fully give their attention to God in prayer and preaching. This is why the deacon office is necessary. This is why God has ordained this office in Scripture. We are here to serve the church through the waiting of tables, by maintaining unity within the body, and by allowing the pastors to focus on the Word. Now that we've talked about the need for deacons, let's take a look at the qualifications for a deacon. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read verses 8 through 13. God's Word says this, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, "...temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus." Okay, clearly there is a lot going on in this passage. Paul is writing to Timothy, and in this part of the letter, Paul is laying out the qualifications for both elders and deacons. Elders came first, and we just read the deacon section. Now, I feel like there's sometimes a bit of a misunderstanding about these qualifications. Even here in our church, I I see these misunderstandings surface. And, And what I mean is this. There's this idea that the deacon is the next level Christian, right? Almost like you've got Regular church members, deacons, and then your pastors. Like there's like tears. And I see, I see the surface within the body of, of Christ. In order to be a deacon, you almost have to be operating as some super Christian. And guys, that, that's just not the case. I, I've heard that from men in, the, in this church whenever I've, I've asked men, Hey, are you ready to be a deacon? Have you ever considered being, uh, being a deacon here? And I've heard, oh, no, I'm not nearly qualified for that. I'm no great theologian. I don't know how to teach. I don't know how to speak in public. I don't know how to pray right. Guys, do we see that here in the text? No, we don't. It's a misunderstanding about what a deacon is. And I, but I hear it all the time. This, this isn't describing the next level Christian. Hear me on this. This is not describing the next level Christian. This is describing every one of us that is trusting in the finished work of Christ. All of us should be qualified in this, in this area. If this is the definition of the ordinary Christian life, then how, how much more so for the deacon who is serving in the church? And, and this is Paul's point, that if someone is to be considered for the office of deacon, then this is just the baseline by which they are to be measured, because this is the baseline for every Christian. Right? There's honestly a lot more that can be said about each of these qualifications that we're going to read here uh, than we have time to cover this morning, but I I do want to go ahead and touch on each of them quickly. So let's start at the very top. Verse 8. A deacon must be reverent. Verse 8 starts with the word likewise. This should automatically cause us to look back at the previous verses to see what has already been described, right? Now, obviously in this case, Paul has just finished describing the qualifications for elders or pastors. He is essentially saying, just as a pastor is to be reverent, so a deacon is to be reverent as well. That's essentially what he's saying. But what does Paul mean by reverent? What's the meaning of this? I think David Guzik... Um, he explains it best when he says says that this means showing proper respect to both God and to man. That's what reverence means. Showing proper respect to both God and to man. Reverence is not necessarily a persona uh, um, of somber attitude like I think we we imagine it sometimes. It means that deacons are called to be overall respectful to both God and man alike. And I honestly think that Paul list this qualification first because it is maybe the hardest qualification to meet. I say that because it completely goes against the sinful nature of man, and it calls us to forget our own pride. Instead of being focused on ourselves, it calls us to humility before God and before others. This is so, so incredibly hard to do, right? I struggle with this every single day of my life. I struggle with it um, when God doesn't give me my way, I struggle with it with my brother and my co workers at work. I struggle with it with my wife when I come home. I struggle with it with my kids. And I even struggle with you guys here at church. And y'all can attest to that. Having a servant or having a reverent spirit that respects both God and man is hard, but it's something that a deacon is called to do. We must do it. And I genuinely pray every day that God would make me stronger in this area because I know that it's an area that I'm weak. And I, as Christians, each of us should strive to be more like Christ in this area. Now let's look at double tongue. A deacon is not meant to be double-tongued. I think that the implications of this command are are, clear, are fairly clear, right? Deacons cannot speak good out of one side of their mouth and then speak evil from the other side of their mouth. Having a double-sided tongue is evidence of a double-sided heart. There's no room for that in the body of Christ. Deacons are not, given to, are not supposed to be given to much wine, verse 8. All right, let me just say that there's, there's two camps on this subject, right? There are those that interpret this to mean that deacons are not to be addicted to alcohol or to have a problem with alcohol that would harm their ministry or harm their service. There are others that interpret this verse to mean that deacons should completely abstain from the consumption of alcohol altogether. You want to know my opinion? Too bad. Not going to give it. <laughs> there, there's, valid opinion, there, there, there's valid arguments for both opinions. Um, and I will say that. But I think that we can agree on the heart of the matter. And that's ultimately what matters here. Is what is the heart of the issue that Paul is getting at here? And he's trying to convey this that deacons are not allowed to have addictions that will distract them from their duty to the church and their dedication to the gospel. That's the point, right? This is honestly true for every single one of us that belongs to Jesus, but even more so for deacons who serve in the church. Deacons are not to be greedy for money, continuing in verse 8. This sort of ties into that idea of what we were just talking about with addiction. Deacons are not meant to have a love for money that will surpass their love for Jesus and his church. This was especially important in the first century church because the deacons were the distributors of the funds and the food. So if a deacon was greedy, there would be a temptation to steal from the church. You can't have that. Now, does this mean that a deacon cannot be a capitalist or can't pursue personal financial wealth through hard work? Absolutely not. That's not what the scriptures are saying here. I certainly don't bust my butt every day at work doing a full-time job and then come home to a functional farm that I'm keeping up for my own benefit. I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing it to provide for my family and hopefully be able to provide more to the, the furtherance of the gospel, right? But if that desire for money ever impeded my worship or ministry then that's a problem. That's where the problem lies. So deacons are not meant to be greedy. Deacons are to hold to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, verse 9. That's a mouthful. Um, But what Paul is simply saying is that a deacon should adhere to proper doctrine with a pure conviction of faith. Deacons cannot be men of little faith whose whose doctrine is tossed to and fro by the random teachings that they may encounter. So we can't be influenced by by those that are on social media and have our doctrine tossed around just based on what we hear. We're supposed to be men of conviction. We're supposed to have a strong faith. We must believe the true gospel with great conviction by the word and the word alone. Deacons are first to be tested. So deacons cannot be men that have not first demonstrated their faithfulness before the church. And and this is why we have a certain time period um, that someone must go through after joining the church before they can be considered for deaconship. Right? We need to have time to observe a potential deacon to make sure that they meet the criteria and are able to serve faithfully. Deacons are to be found blameless, verse 10. Does Paul mean that deacons have to perfectly meet all the criteria and, um, and must be perfectly sinless? Of course not. Of course he's not saying that. If he did, then you wouldn't have a deacon body because none of us would be qualified. None of us are perfect. And none of us can perfectly fulfill these qualifications. No, what he simply means is that a deacon is to strive for holiness and that there is no glaringly obvious unrepented sin that would prevent them from serving faithfully. Just as every Christian falls short of of, uh, being perfectly holy as Christ calls us to be holy, so a deacon will fall short of being perfectly qualified for the office. But in both cases, we depend on the perfection of Christ to be our perfection before God. Deacons and their wives, verse 11. Okay, so here's another one that breeds a little bit of controversy. Here at First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's, we use the New King James Version translation of the Scriptures. But if you happen to be reading from another version such as the NIV, you may notice that instead of using the phrase, their wives, the NIV says, women. This has sparked some controversy over whether or not women are allowed to hold the office of deacon. So if we look at the original Greek manuscripts, it actually is translated, women, not wives. But, but we see the very same word used in the next verse when Paul is saying that a deacon is to be the husband of one woman. Clearly, that is a reference to a single wife. So Paul would not use the word in the previous verse to, to say women. And then the very next verse used the same word to say wives. Clearly, he means wives in both cases. So for our purposes this morning, I'm going to argue that Paul is actually addressing the wives of deacons here in verse 11. They do not have to meet all the same criteria as their husbands, but they are called to be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, and faithful in all things. Ladies, this means that y'all have got to have your husbands' backs when they're a deacon. I don't expect Melody to serve in the same way that I serve. I don't expect her to have the same gifts that I have, but I do expect her to spiritually support me in my ministry. Right? If she was a busybody in the church, or a gossip, or overall indifferent to my service and just didn't care, then that would make my ministry very difficult. I would not be able to serve effectively. Therefore, wives of deacons don't necessarily have to be gifted in the same way as their husbands, but they need to support their husbands in his service. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Verse 12. Okay, so this is the last controversial one, I promise. Again, there's two camps that we need to acknowledge here about the one wife. Some interpret the idea of one wife literally. Therefore, a deacon cannot be a divorcee. Others interpret this to mean that a deacon must be a man who has been faithful to one woman on this side of the cross. Therefore, if a man was divorced prior to conversion, but has been faithful to one woman after salvation, we do not hold this against him. In either case, a deacon certainly cannot be an adulterous man who is unfaithful to his wife. And and that's the gist of it here. That's what Paul is getting at, is that he is supposed to be faithful to his wife. He cannot be adulterous. He must also rule his home well. Now this doesn't mean that he rules with an iron fist and his children are perfectly obedient, but it does mean that he leads his family to the best of his ability in the way of the gospel and his family respects him for it. Now, so everybody take a deep breath. We've earned it. I know there's a lot of information. I know you guys probably feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. But we're on the home stretch now. We started by looking at the need for deacons in Acts 6. Then we saw the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, what do we do with this information? Why does it matter? Why should we care? Well, first of all, look at your bulletins. If you got your bulletin, there's a list of names in there that was published this morning. How do those names match up with what we've talked about this morning? How do those names match up with the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3? See, the deacon nomination process is not a popularity contest. The deacon nomination process is not something that we take lightly. Because these are the men that are going to be serving our church. Right? And so, don't vote for somebody because they're your best friend. Don't vote for somebody because you don't know who else to vote for go home and pray about this. This this is a topic of prayer. This is not something that we just decide the morning of. This is something that our church should take extremely heavily. And so we compare the list of names in this bulletin to what God has has had to say about deacons here in Scriptures. That's the first application. But secondly, how do you compare with this, this list of qualifications? How do you compare? Because remember, like I said, the, the qualifications, that's not just for deacons. That's, that's the baseline for the Christian faith, right? We should all look like this. We should all be qualified in this manner, whether, you're, whether you are eligible to be a deacon or not. And so how do you, how do you compare? Look at your life and look at, these, look at these qualifications that Paul lists out. Where do you lack? Ask your brothers in Christ to support you, to help you, to pray with you. Let's strive for holiness for the sake of Jesus. But then third, what's the point of all of this? Why do we have deacons? Why, why Why do we care if we have deacons that serve well? It's because this is for God's glory, right? That's the whole point of the office of deacon is for God to be glorified. We do all this so that he will be glorified. We have to have servants within the church who are able to help this church function well so that we can spread the gospel and so that we can grow one another in Christ's likeness. Now, praise God that he gives us deacons. Praise God that he has given us this gift of the deacon office, a means by which we can more effectively glorify him, right? So if... If you are a deacon currently, if you're a prospective deacon, or if you've never even thought about it, you might be thinking, okay, well, how do I do this the right way? Right? Like, how do, how do I be a deacon and do it well? Look to the best servant in, in all of Scripture, Jesus Christ. Right? Like, that, that's the, that is the, the wonderful thing about this Is that we, we don't have to worry about the, the office of deacon just being this arbitrary thing that we have no measuring stick for. We know how to serve faithfully and we know how to serve well because Jesus did it for us. Jesus served so well that he served to the point of death for God's glory. Guys, Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could never live. He lived the life... That we can't live because we are sinful beings. Just just as Pastor Cody talked about this morning with the kids. We sin. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus has not. Jesus came, gave up his spot in heaven, his heavenly throne. Gave up that position that he rightfully earned. And he came down and lived that perfect life that we can never live. He served God perfectly. He served God by completely putting himself to the side and giving all glory to the Father. He served his his brothers in the church. He served his disciples. He served the people of the church well. And he gave us this example so that when we look at the scriptures, we can say, I know how to serve because Jesus served for me. And when he died on the cross, he gave his life, the ultimate price, so that we would be made right with the Father and that the follower would be glorified through his actions, through his service. So praise God that we have this perfect example of what it looks like to be a deacon. So if you're scared, if you don't know, if you've been asked, hey, have you ever considered being a deacon? And you're scared, so you take your name off the list. Guys, next year, don't be scared. Know that Jesus has already laid this out for us. We know how to serve because he served for us. And we're here to serve together. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you have given us this office of deacon. Lord, I thank you that you have shown us what it looks like to serve the church well and to serve it faithfully. Lord, I pray that this that this sermon this morning would would help us to see that it doesn't it doesn't take a super Christian to be a deacon. It doesn't take somebody who is on the next level. Lord, it it just takes the ordinary Christian who is faithfully serving the church. Someone who loves you and someone who wants to glorify you, Lord. That's all that we ask. That's all that you ask. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to do this. Even if we're not eligible for deaconship, Lord, I pray that each of us, our lives are are showing this in in our daily walk with you, that we are serving you faithfully. Lord, I pray that you just... Protect our deacons. Help us to, to serve you well. And Lord, as we, um, as we nominate our next round of deacons, I pray that you would lay the right men on our hearts and help us to nominate them so that they can faithfully serve you as well. Lord, I pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.
1: Um, let's show our appreciation for Brother Brock this morning to bring God's word. Thank you, Brother. Man, I just, we got an abundance of riches here. I was, I think we've had 23 Sundays so far this year, and we've had five men in total embrace this pulpit on Sunday morning, and every one of them has been a church member, part of our church. And so that's a, that's a, I mean, praise God, that's a wonderful thing. So um, we're thankful for that. Uh, And I think, so we've, we crossed off godly parent, godly deacon. So next time, godly husband, godly Sunday school teacher. Godly bass player, we got we got lots of opportunities for you um, here, brother. But I appreciate that. Um, on a serious note, we come to our time of invitation. I think um, there's not much more I can add to that, but I, I would encourage you. Listen, I think I think first and foremost, this um, this really propels us to see the importance of church membership, right? Uh, at a deacon is, is tied to the local church that they serve. They're not necessarily community servants. They are a certain people servants. Uh, and so maybe you're here this morning and uh, you've, whether you've been visiting a while or you have questions about church membership, what that looks like, and, and maybe you just don't belong to a local church and never have seen the importance of that. Let me, let me tell you, the Bible shouts the importance of belonging, not just attending, but belonging to a church. Uh, and this is vitally important in that as well. Uh, I would also echo um, what, what we really need, church, is a, uh, we need a culture change in our idea of what a deacon is. Um, we have lived in the realm of the deacons as a governing office. I didn't hear anything about the decision-making for the church in there. I didn't hear anything about having to approve or... Not approve anything in what the scriptures have relayed to us and what a deacon does. And yet for the reality, for the most of Southern Baptist life, and my Southern Baptist life, that has been the role of the deacon. Is that they've been the decision makers, the governing office of the church. And that's simply not in scripture. They are leading servants. And I praise God that we have that here at First Baptist Church of Great Gables. That we have men who embrace and acknowledge their role as simply leading in service of the Lord and service to you. And so I'm thankful for that. And I would echo one last thing. As, As he was preaching, I was just reminded of Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, the reality is when we hear sermons on deacons and we hear even this text, it's so disconnected from us. We disconnect it because we feel as if This is for somebody else and not me. But the reality is, even in Christ's call uh, to serve and not be served and give his life, in it is the call of every single disciple. We are called to take up our cross and follow Christ in this way, that we would not be people who are always looking to be served as if this life is about us, but we are looking to serve and to lay down our lives for the sake of each other. Right? Not just physically, but on a, a day-by-day basis to die to self for the sake of another. And So this is, as First Timothy 3 uh, clearly states, what Mark Dever says is the extraordinary thing about the qualifications of deacons is their ordinariness. Uh, the reality is, as you examine your life according to this, um, this is evidence of what it looks like to have a heart, heart that's changed by the gospel of grace. And so if you're looking at 1 Timothy 3 and you're looking at some of these qualifications and you immediately disconnect the idea of what it looks like for you to be a deacon because you may not be qualified or think yourself qualified, measure up to the qualifications because they're simply a reflection of the outpouring of grace and the fruit of one who has given their life to Christ. So that begs the question. Have you given your life to Christ? What does that even mean? Right, As we heard this morning, we are born sinful. We are born wanting to go our own way. We are born into this world not wanting God's good and gracious design for us, but wanting to create and maintain our own design. And the reality is, because there is a creator God, and that God is holy, that because of that very sin, we are deserving of his wrath upon us. We are deserving for the punishment for breaking that which is his law, right? If you measure up to the qualifications of perfection, you know that you've told a lie. You know that you've had hatred in your heart towards your brother. You know that that you have not loved the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that, those are sins that need to be punished. The reality is everyone, if we were to stand before this holy God, would stand as guilty. But there's something beautiful that's called the gospel that's very important here, that, that God, because of his unfathomable love for people who continually shake their fist at him and break his law, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that Brother Brock was talking about. And not only that, but to die and take upon himself the punishment for sins that he never committed and give to those who believe on him a righteousness that he has so rightly earned. And so today is the day of salvation, if you would but turn from your sins and trust in the finished work of Christ. Today is the day that you could be saved. This all happened and was accomplished on the cross. And so that's why we believe this is why we preach this is why the role of a deacon is important because it serves the local church. And so if you were here today and you have not given your heart, given your life to Christ, I'd love the opportunity to share what that looks like more down front. I'll be down front. Brother Brock, I would encourage you to go meet with Pastor Justin in the back so you can shake his hand and thank him for using his gifts here. But if you're here today and you want to know more about what it looks like, to have a relationship with Jesus to fulfill your very purpose for existence here on earth, I'd love the opportunity to talk more about that with you. I'm going to... um, turn it over to Brother Danny, who's going to close in a word of prayer. We're going to read our benediction, and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Brother, for your wonderful word, and let's be in prayer together for the next coming weeks of what it looks like to be in the role of a deacon.